Good day and welcome to episode 149 of the Fect Podcast. A light from the shadows shall spring. Although I preferred my title, which was one interview to rule them all. But anyway, um, I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew, and this is the better title. How many times do I have to tell you, Dave? This is the better title. It's how deep, how deeply into Lord of the Rings uh, Francesco was. You know, he'll get this title, even if you want the simplistic reference for the people that voted. I, I, I just movies. think this title is a bit, um, a little bit pretentious. But apart from, it's fine. It's fine. Pretentious for us. You know, we have no, no, like grand delusions of of, of greatness, do we? So. You know, a nice You're just simple... lacking ambition, Dave. We we <laughs> could be we could be Lord of the Rings nerds if only you put a little bit of extra effort. That's <laughs> anyway. What's on the show today, Matt? <laughs> uh, what's on the show today? We've got um, something related to Lord of the Rings, which you might have picked up. Uh, we've got a great show, actually. But before that, we're going to be thanking uh, all our patrons. Uh, we've got four new patrons to thank this month, and then in the world of gaming, we're talking about. All sorts of things. We've got a new release from Borkboard. I'm going to bang my fist on the table and remind you all that you should be subscribing to the Feng Shui uh, subscription service. Um, I'm, hes- got, I'm, uh, I'm hesitating to correct your, correct your pronunciation of Morkborg, Matt. Merk Boyer. <laughs> Come on. At least try. How many times have you been told? Uh, I, yeah, you, you've just stopped my flow there, and, you, and and I had perfect pronunciation of feng shui. That you keep insisting should be feng, pronounced feng shui. So <laughs> I'm still going to call it feng shui. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not feng shui. Well, it might be feng shui. I concede that, but I'm still going to call it feng shui because that's how it's spelled. Uh, and. Um, We've got a, a, oh dear, I haven't corrected this, or I thought I'd done the correction, it hasn't worked. We've got a Simba Room thing uh, to talk about, which you may have seen announcements for already. We do. And we've got um, a mysterious announcement to make, uh, but actually we'll leave that till after the interview. Um, We're going to talk about Alien and Alien campaigns and stuff that's coming up on our show. We have, all, oh, and also I should say on our stream, we've also from you finally got that bit of homework I set you bloody weeks ago, where <laughs> I said, give me some acid criticals. Yes, indeed. And you're going to explain that your dog ate your homework again? No, no, I've done the homework. Um, okay. It was, it was, right, so it I'm going to see a lovely set of 36 brilliant acid criticals. Can't wait to listen to that. <laughs> then we've got the main performance of the um of the of this episode we have which is a brilliant interview and it did go really well didn't it we it was we, lovely we yeah recorded this interview on monday and it was just fabulous it was great yeah and it was we, we hadn't spoken to either um martin uh takichi or um francesco francesco sorry i was gonna say federico but we interviewed him ages ago yeah francesco nepotello and it was wonderful it was so so nice chatting to them we could have gone on for longer and we, we we banged on for ages anyway it was just a real delight listening to them talk about yeah that, the that interview even in its edited down state is one hour and four minutes long it's a corker <laughs> it is and it just yeah francesco is really lovely and he opened a door onto a site of the a glimpse of the european gaming scene that, mm. that i'd never heard about and um Absolutely fascinated me. We could have talked about that, as you say, for ages, but we focused on the upcoming 
forbidden the forbidden land <laughs> the one ring for god's sake matthew <laughs> i was gonna say the <laughs> the, up, the upcoming symbol um, the upcoming forbidden i can't lands. say freely uh, i was just about to say the feng shui edition of <laughs> Um, the Free League edition of The One Ring. Um, and there is some news about that, which you will hear in the interview, but we will reiterate again after the interview because it's exciting. And we just can't get the staff, can we? And you can't get the staff. <laughs> no, 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 you can't. Um, cool. Right, so shall we kick off? Let's do that. Yeah, World of Gaming then. What do you want? No, to... no, thank you to our patrons. Of course. All, mate. <laughs> I've just talked you through it step by step. <laughs> You can't get the staff either, so... I can't get the staff. <laughs> I think, okay, so, if anybody would like to apply for <laughs> one of the two roles of co-hosts for the Effect podcast, please send your <laughs> applications to, because there are going to be two vacancies soon, I think. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to give we're going to give people a thing to send people to very uh, shortly. So actually, yeah. well, not very shortly at the end of this uh, episode, which <clears throat> is turning out to be quite a long one if we can't get this bloody right. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Let's get on with it then. Right. So we've got uh, four new patrons yes. to thank, and uh, they've been very, really generous this month, so I want to thank them all. One of whom, we don't know his real name, but he goes under the moniker Not Russell Crowe. And yeah. he, he should be doubly thanked, because not only has he become a patron, thank you very much for becoming a patron, Not Russell Crowe, but he's also the person that nominated us for the favourite podcast of the year, um, poll that N-World ran yes. last year. What a legend that man is. Or woman so he's is. an absolute legend. <clears throat> uh, or, or or she is. Russell Crowe is not, obviously, because this is not Russell Crowe. We're talking about <laughs> not Russell Crowe being an absolute legend here. I, I, quite, like, um, I quite like Russell Crowe as well. He's done some good stuff, actually. Uh, yeah, I quite enjoyed Master and Commander, actually. Yeah. Mm. Uh, which is a film that's underrated by a lot of people, but yeah. I, I thought it was lovely. I thought he was a bit um, miscast in that, actually, but he was still quite good. Well, he might have been, actually, because I've not read the books, but yeah. I, I, I very much enjoyed the film. Did you see he, there was a little Twitter spat over that no. uh, last week? Somebody had said, you know, if you can't get to sleep, I recommend Master and Commander. <laughs> and Russell Crowe <laughs> replied back saying, it's a bloody good film. <laughs> it's a film for grown-ups. <laughs> Uh, um, so anyway, uh, that's that's a little by the by, and it's not it's not Russell Crowe we're talking about. It's not, not Russell, Russell Crowe. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much, not yeah. Russell Crowe, for for everything you've done yes, for the thank, podcast. Thank you. Not yeah. least of which is joining the Patreon. Yeah. Um, and then there's Bill Miller. Bill Miller thank from you, Bill. the US. Uh, he has joined the Patreon, and um, thank you very much, Bill. Uh, we've also got uh, Matthias Bergström from Sweden, I think. Bergström. Um, I think it's Bergström. Bergström. Okay. I think. Thank yeah. you for correcting me. Um, apologies, Matthias, if we are, again, butchering your name. It's not unheard of. <laughs> so no. if we are getting it wrong, um, apologies. Uh, so so thank you, Matthias. And um, uh, pre-warning, Alex, because I might be about to butcher your surname, <laughs> uh, but our most recent patron is Alex Aguirre, again from the US, and he's somebody who, spoilers, we're going to be having on the show next week, but not just because he's a patron. In fact, we invited him onto the show, and then he became a patron. Mm -hmm. That's how much he loves us. So uh, thank you very much, Alex. Yeah, well, Alex Alex was the writer of um, the the short alien scenario that won the Facebook page best short scenario 
competition a few weeks ago, Outpost 247. And then um, Doug invited me to run it on, on Victory Kadishi Gaming. So it was great to do that. I talked to, I talked to Alex a little bit about how I was going to run it and got his, I think, approval for, for what I did. And it went really well. So um, yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a talented game writer as well. And I think there's an awful lot more to him than meets the eye, I think, isn't there, Matthew? Yes, and which we'll, we will be exploring, I think, in our next episode. Indeed. But thanks, Alex, very much for your, for your patronage. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very generous. Thank you. And talking of our next episode, I want to stress our next episode is going to be in about three weeks' time. It will As be. usual. But... 150! Woo! It is episode 150, so we're going to try and make it a special episode. We'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. But the other thing that Alex has done... Is he's tipped us over the two hundred dollar mark on on Patreon? <clears throat> we have some commitments, don't we? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we are now uh, going to uh, well, not now, frankly, not now. But if we can work it out from uh, episode one hundred and fifty onwards, we'll be trying to do a show every two weeks. Yes, because so- that's what we promised. So uh, stupidly, thank- because we thought nobody would ever pay us two hundred dollars. So thank, but, uh, thanks but to thank all you the- to all our patrons yes. who together have paid us two hundred dollars, and now we've got to keep our promise to them, which is to try to try to do um, uh, an we, episode every two weeks. Yeah, we will do an episode every two weeks. I think we can manage that. They they might need to be slightly shorter, possibly. But um, knowing what Matthew, yeah, and I, 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 think, what I think there'll probably be like, one. Knowing feature what, every what, week every yeah. time knowing what we're like we'll end up blathering on for a long time anyway so uh but yes thank you everybody for getting us to the level where i have to talk to matthew more frequently than i already do thanks a bunch yeah thanks for nothing guys <laughs> yeah, you bastards <laughs> so anyway no, but, but yeah great. thank thanks. you to not yeah. just these four new patrons but to but all to- our patrons yeah. uh we really appreciate that you like the work we do enough to help us actually do it. That's great. I mean, absolutely. I completely agree. But also, I mean, thank you to everybody who just dips in and listens to us as well and gives us all that support, even without joining us on Patreon. Um, we, it's, you know, when we, when we, maybe we should have this little sort of reminiscence thing in the 150th episode. But just going to say, when we started this three and a half years ago, we had no idea where it would take us. And it's taken us to the, to the point where we've got our patrons. We've got a lot of people who are supporting us. Loads of new friends. Uh, we've become published game designers, getting a bit more yeah. work here and there. Don't 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 spoil all of next next episode. Come <laughs> I'm on. just I'm just it's called it's called foreshadowing, Matthew. It's... Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, but yes, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the everything that's been brilliant since yeah. we started this podcast in about three weeks' time when we yep. do episode 150. Yes. Right now, though, we should talk about the world of gaming. Yes, we should. There's a few bits and, in there, isn't uh, there? One of the fun and crazy things that we did as part of this podcast is we ended up accidentally doing the very first Merkborg streams on YouTube. <laughs> and they remain uh, some of our most popular YouTube videos. And it was entirely by accident. Um, but Merkborg is coming out with yet another Kickstarter. And this is called Heretic. Heretics. Yeah. Um, and it's another sort of fanzine-style publication of a number of the Merkborg cult uh, adventures that people have written and stuff like that. And there's a judge's screen and there's some other stuff too that I don't quite understand. I was going to say, I, you're, I, you're, you're, I think you're more 
into this that I, I've never played Mugboy yet. Um, I would like to. So is this an expansion on the original or is this a kind of parallel standalone game? No, I think this itself? is an expansion on the original right. Heretic. There will be, I think, later in the year, some a quite exciting thing, which is a parallel, and that will be Cyborgia, um, which <laughs> is going to be... A cyberpunk. Right, right, right. <clears throat> I thought you said scythe. <laughs> okay, play, you're playing death. That sounds quite fun, actually, though. But yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, death death, death is quite common in these things. Um, <laughs> but yes, Mortborg is really, um, it's really blown up. It's really blown Taken up. off, isn't it's it? Like, yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's definitely, it's not, it's not my favourite style of game to play. I really enjoyed running it. It, I was so surprised by how much I enjoyed running it. Mm. Um, and part of me really wants to get the old gang back together because this was my shop gang who willingly um, uh, said that they'd uh, stream when in, back in the early days of lockdown when we couldn't play yeah. uh, around a table anymore. It's, it's um, Tom who we play uh, Verson with. Is he in that gang? Yes, he is. Yeah, in that I thought game. so. Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, and Tom, as well, is a big fan of um, uh, uh, the well, a big fan of Alex Aguia, actually, coincidentally. Okay, cool. Uh, so um, excellent. So yeah. So, uh, uh, but but also a couple of people when I started playing other games that weren't Merkborg, dropped out to do other stuff, and I'd love to get them back if we play yeah. some more Merkborg because nice. they were the real stars of the show. Well, everybody was a star of the show, but um, I wouldn't want to play Merkborg without them because they were hilarious. <laughs> cool. Uh, so anyway, that's coming up on Kickstarter. Well, it is on Kickstarter right now. Uh, I haven't yet put my pledge in. I'm going to wait till the end, um, but I will be pledging. You, you're definitely going to back that, are you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the last one, Ferectory, I backed in PDF only. I I will stress to anybody interested in Merkborg, if you want the core rules, don't get the PDF of them. You need the hardcover because yeah, yeah. it is a thing of beauty. <laughs> but I thought, well, just adventures. I can run that off any old crap. So I got PDF last time. I am tempted to go for the physical edition this time with things like the judges screen and stuff like that. And that, that um, you'll, but, be able, you'll be able to add on the, um, the original book as well, presumably. That, uh, and is, yes, if, if you're yeah. if you're a new pledger and you need another copy of the original book, or you've done your whole campaign already and burned, and burned your original it. book, yeah. which is part of the rules after all, <laughs> you need a new original book. Then that's, uh, that's, this is the uh, that's a very good. It's you. a very good resale tactic, isn't it? You know, if you're absolutely, if you're doing yeah. the, if you're it's doing what the, I'm going to recommend for all role playing games. If you're the doing the rules as written, when you finish the game, you burn the book. So why haven't you burned the bloody book? Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I, I think when we launch our first role-playing game, Dave, we should say, when you've done your introductory adventure, you burn the book. <laughs> and buy another one, straight away. And buy another one, obviously. In fact, yeah. just buy three copies at the start, just to keep you safe, you know. <laughs> cool. Um, so, that, yeah, so that's uh, Merkborg. Um, uh, I don't think you've got anything else. Am I running this? Or sh um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think you want to talk about feng shui, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, and then we've got a little, little bit to talk about Christmas, an alien. So, I talked about feng shui, and um, we uh, we mentioned that there's this the feng shui is very close to my heart um, as a game. Uh, there was a subscription 
package put out by Atlas Games where they said, if you just sign up uh, to, to buy four games a year, we'll produce four games a year. They What they wanted was 350 subscribers. They didn't quite get that, but I think they're going ahead anyway. But I just want to urge any of our listeners who are at all interested in... Um, in in Hong Kong movies and uh, mm-hmm. action adventure to uh, to subscribe to that because I really want to see more of those things. So um, that's just a plea from me to you guys. I did say earlier I was going to bang my fist on the table, but I'm I'm actually on my knees now, just begging you <laughs> to subscribe to this. What um what's the terms of the subscription then? Well, it's um. It could be cancelled at any time. It's only paid when they produce something, so it's a promise to buy stuff. Really, it's not. Uh, it's not a great con, um, uh, and so uh, they will. You put your credit card details in now, obviously, but they will only bill you when a thing is actually produced. Right. They aim to produce four things a year. They're going to be. Uh, I can't remember. There's a PDF subscription price and a hardback subscription price. I've but gone for PDFs. Obviously, but you're not. You're not paying. You're not paying as kind of a monthly subscription to be on the list, kind of thing. You're you're signing up to. You're, you're signing you're, up to you're, buy four things. You're signing year, up basically. to buy things when they when they drop, as it were. When they drop, and you right. can cancel any time, and um, you only get billed when they drop. Okay. Um, yeah, that's. And it's like I think it's something like seven quid uh, a quarter an issue. For um for the PDF version and well, right. not quid obviously dollars and something like fifteen for the hardback or not hardback the the printed the, version the, the so, physical um, version yeah okay so I'd urge people to do that if 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 they want to there was an issue with the signing up which I think cost them signing up which was that when you put your address down you couldn't um put an address that was outside the United States unless you're in the United States uh, yeah. forces. Yeah. Uh, they they suggested a workaround around that, and they denied that it was actually a problem until I pointed it out to them by showing them screenshots. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they might have lost a few European uh, customers that way. But yeah. it's great. I just want I just want people go to Atlas Games, look at the Feng Shui subscription. We'll put a link in the show notes, and if so, you're at all interested, do that. The other thing, so, so, news, so hang on, just just to finish that off. So if you're going, if you if you want to go for the hard copy, you're basically signing up to uh, what sixty pound a year. Fifteen pound a quarter, I think something like that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's that. Uh, you know, I might, I might even have a have a have a pop at that actually because I lo- I love Feng Shui. I've never owned it. I've only ever played it when you've run it, but it's always been great fun. So uh, it might, yeah, it might be a good addition to my collection, even if I'd got no real likelihood of ever GMing it at any point. Maybe we should do a demo game at some point. That's, Maybe our next con. That's not a terrible should... idea, actually. Yeah. No. Cool. Sorry, I although I did actually, su- I did suggest doing a, a game at the last con, and nobody signed up for it. So, um, yeah. Maybe anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, Simba Room. Yes, yeah, Simba Room starter set. Yes, that's um, that's just come that's up. out for pre-order. Yep, pre-order is it not Kickstart? No, no, it's a pre-order. Pre-order ah, off, cool. off, off the website. Yep. Yeah, nice. So I haven't gone for that. I obviously own quite a lot of Simbarum stuff already, and mm-hmm. I, I. So I, I don't so know. I, think- I, I don't know what they're including in it. I know uh, our our friend and patron Guru Phil is obviously quite interested, as is uh, our friend Andy. Um, yeah, and so, our friend and patron Neil as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm I'm digressing here slightly. I'm not a huge fan of starter sets, actually. 
Um, because I think yeah, they, they. I love starter sets. Yeah. Why are you not a huge fan of starter sets? So I, I, I think you know, a starter set is supposed to you know it's it's, a, it's an easier access into a particular game. Yes. But, but yes. in in my experience, a lot of the starter sets I've seen are are just a bit thin for the money, and quite often they leave out some important elements that you would like to see. And it just feels a bit, I don't know, if you're going to shell out, I don't know, seven, eight, ten, fifteen quid on a starter set, why not go the whole hog and buy the core book for 25 or something? Um, and I know not yeah, everyone... I, I, know, I think I know everyone you may be living in the 80s here not because everyone I don't think you get a core not, book for 25 not quid everyone, or No, dollars. that's true. I mean, not everyone could afford it either. And that, that's entirely fair true. But I, yeah, I don't know. I just... So, I, I, um, I, I, I think I haven't seen a starter set that I've picked up and looked at and gone, oh, that is... That is brilliant. I'm so glad I've got that. I don't think I've, right. I don't think I've ever done that. And I've I been... will counterpoint that with the with the Star Wars starter sets from from Fantasy Flight Games. Yeah, I haven't seen out. any of those. Yeah, and uh, frankly, they're better than the core game. <laughs> okay. um, so I bought my boy when he was like eleven, um, and it was his first sort of role playing experience. I bought him a starter set, and he, you know picked it up and ran with it and we had a great adventure me and his sister um uh, running around on Tatooine mm-hmm. uh, and of course being slightly experienced uh, role player you know I suggested something that wasn't in the starter set and and the boy was confident enough with the rules to just go with it so um so are you, are, you, are, you, off on- are you actually making my point slightly there so you know, as an experienced gamer, you improved. You know, it needed improving by something that wasn't, yeah, wasn't but I'm, in it. I'm, I'm just about to demolish your point if you'll give me the moment <laughs> to do that. So anyway, we very much enjoyed that game, and uh, for Christmas or something, the boy asked for um, the core book, and we started generating characters, and that's as far as we've got because the character generation is just too complex. Okay, I feel for this day and age. And you know he's he's never played it since, as far as I'm aware. He's not even opened the core book again okay. since that. Um, yeah. So, so you know, there was a starter set there. The other one which I've also bought him, he hasn't played yet because uh, COVID happened. But he, uh, there's a nascent um, role-playing games group uh, in 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 down our street, as it were. Yeah. And they've been playing D and D, and he was going to be running Call of Cthulhu for them, and I bought him the Call of Cthulhu starter set. Uh, he hasn't got the core books yet, but that is, I feel, absolutely brilliant. Now, back in the day, they did a starter adventure, Alone Against the Dark, that was a sort of um, fighting fantasy style. You don't need to be, you don't need to have a GM for this. Okay, you know, yeah, yeah. You do this yourself and it, you know, it's fighting fantasy, choose your own adventure stuff. But it taught you the rules as you went on, so you could then GM the game. And that's in this starter set, but then there's a sort of, on from that one, here's a scenario for you and one or two mates. Uh, and then here's a more complex scenario for, you know, a proper group of four or whatever. And each time it builds up. So I really like that starter set. A lot of them come with dice now as well. Um, yeah, I, it's which, interesting. So I, I'm just looking at um, some of the information on the starter set. On the uh, Simba Room one. On the Simba Room one, yeah. And so you get a 64-page rule book introducing the game and, and the, you know, the world. A 64-page adventure compendium, so that's 128 pages to start with. Um, the Bright Davakar dice set, with all the dice you need. Uh, a double-sided map. Now, I think that's something that's good, because the the core book uh, and the books, when I got it, didn't have uh, a nice map like that. And actually, the, mm. the, the, 
the map of of Davokar is is quite detailed and it's quite a darkly drawn map, you know, in the style of the game. And on a, on an A4 size, it's it, it, you, know, it you looks, mean on a page? Yeah, you know, when, when it's a page yeah, in the book, it's quite book. detailed. Yeah, it's it, it's 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 too big a map for that size page. So having had mm. a map that you could pull out and open up would have been really helpful. So that's a good thing. Um, but it's saying here, price approximately forty dollars. So I mean, there's you a, could get the core book for not much more. You're getting a lot of stuff there, actually. I think for your for your forty dollars. Mm. But I think it kind of makes my I guess it makes both of our points. One that a starter set isn't going to be just ten quid, but also the core book and all the other books are going to be more expensive on top of that. Um, but Simbaroom itself is a lovely game, and I entirely encourage anybody and everybody who's interested uh, or, or is tempted by this to go and go and do it if they haven't got the stuff ready, because um, it's a beautifully designed game. The we've talked about the the mechanics and stuff before. Um, it's really the the system is in its in in its kind of philosophy really simple, which I like. It does have some complicating elements to it. Um, and it's a it's a D twenty game which we've talked about before because we've kind of or I've certainly kind of fallen in love with dice pools. Um, yeah, me too. But absolutely. the game itself is um, is is really good, and I absolutely super encourage people to get it. Uh, but I say I've been disappointed. To say uh, for, I think one example recently, more recently, I was going to use was Cyberpunk Red, where the start of that feels. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that that was very disappointing opening that. But up. I think a lot of people were disappointed in the Cyberpunk Red starter kit. Yeah. You know, I yeah. don't think you were the only one there. No, that's I haven't true. looked at it because it's it's not a system I'm interested in. Um but uh Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um shall we move on to Alien? Because we've just spent about twenty five minutes talking about <laughs> This is a gonna be a short short one with the episode with the uh, with the interview coming up. Yes, let's do that. So Alien. Um So people are uh sort of on tenterhooks with anticipation for the Colonial Marines PDF, which I'm not sure what date it's supposed to be coming out. Um, but that I think it's going, it's likely to be a, uh, a little bit delayed, I suspect. So I think there's, um, I've been asked to do a bit of work on it, which is beautiful and great. And I'm really enjoying doing that. Um, How are you? Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> So I'm, I'm so I'm I'm doing a little bit of editing, and uh, there are missions in it, and um, I'm I'm going to get a chance to look over those in the way that I looked over Destroyer of Worlds, um, but on a very tight schedule. So um, they are they are very aware that uh, this is this is people are waiting for this, and they are very keen. Thomas is very keen to get this out as soon as they possibly can, and they're working very hard to do that. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is something that that we've been talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Alien and campaign play is becoming, you know, what well, is a hot topic at the moment for Alien fans. And, uh, you know, there are obviously three areas uh, in the game that they are sort of looking at. You've got the Marines, you've got the space truckers, and then you've got what they call explorers. And that kind of, I think, breaks into almost like literally explorers and then colonists. Now, mm. I... As we know before, I've done some done some work um, on colony campaign rules, and dusting dusting those off over Christmas, um, we had the bright idea of why don't we run a colony campaign for Alien on our um, stream on our streams, and so that's what we're going to do. Um, I've got a little bit of work to do yet uh, to get it into the right place, but I'm hoping to have a session zero in the next couple of weeks. 
and then we'll look to run it in a uh, sort of Western Marches style because we'll probably have maybe something like eight, eight or more players who are interested in playing and we'll roll a story about three or four of those for each episode and then we'll build the colony as we go as well um, and see how that goes. Cool. So, watch, so we'll have watch this everybody space. on the session zero creating their characters and creating... The, the the basics of the colony and finding their world exactly they'll find their world um and then they'll establish the colony on the world and that'll be the end of session zero and then we'll move and then a uh, little bit of time for you to take all those pieces and fashion an adventure out and then uh three or four uh players in each session after that a sort of changing cast from the uh from the, um, the core crew, as it were. Yeah, so I think I'm I not mean, explaining it very well. No, so I think I don't think not. I don't think there will be a core crew in the way that we have for our Coriolis stream for most right. of the icons. But it may just happen that certain people, people are, are more available than others. More often. Uh, in which case, they will just evolve, I guess, into the core crew, and the others will be characters, uh, guest stars that will come in um, when they're available to play. But we'll see how it goes. So it's going to be uh, going to be running the, the the colony rules that that I've written, just to see how they play out. A bit of playtesting as well. That'll be fun. And mm -hmm. yeah, let's see what we can make of a um, colony campaign in Alien. And you've playtested these rules before with your home group, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, I started a campaign and... before COVID kicked in, um, mm -hmm. and we ran about three or four scenarios, and it was it was working really nicely. I mean, the problem I did have, which I think is going to potentially be a problem. Uh, in this situation is having very diverse characters um, as the character group and then mm -hmm. drawing them together under a story in which they all have an interest was a bit of a challenge. But that's um, that's something that I think we'll grapple with as we go and see, see how it happens. I mean, I, I haven't decided yet whether or not to think about having some kind of group concept or or some overriding connection that connects all the players at the start other than the fact that they're colonists on this colony um something that draws them together initially to build that reason for why they'd be together doing stuff um cool but that's yeah i think that's so what happens if somebody comes during this uh, um this session zero and says i want to be uh, a hidden android who works for the UPP and is actually a scientist farming alien xenomorphs. Uh, I, I would try and try and cater for that. Um, right, okay, because that's that's my instruction. No, no. <laughs> so I think I think the thing is the this is going to be a uh, an ordinary run of the mill bunch of General Joes on a colony doing something the the system you know when they generate the colony might bring up that it's a science colony possibly mm -hmm. but it certainly isn't going to be starting that this is a xenomorph research base or something so we're talking okay, so we're talking about just, we're talking about working guys and girls trying to make a living and make yeah. a new home rather than you know we may well I get we, we may well get into that in the campaign who knows but the the, the basis the point of this this is ordinary people trying to forge a new life on a new world. So more like Outland than Alien. Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, it's we're, we're stepping away from the cinematic and we're going yeah. to the campaign, and I think that's cool. that's you know, there's an important distinction to make there. 
Um, you know, you could... more like the expanse than Outland. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. So watch this space for that, folks. Um, and um, yeah, in the next couple of weeks, um, look yeah. for more more information. And we will definitely stream that on YouTube, probably Twitch as well, depending on how many um, uh, uh, people you involve in the first setup. Yeah, I'll see how many. I've got five people who have said they are up for it um, so far. And um, cool. I've, I've got some others. You know, um, and they're drawn from your home group and from our patrons. Uh, they will be, yeah. So I'm, I haven't actually gone out to our patrons yet to say, who wants to play? Um, I can do that today, actually. Um, Excellent. So well, we'll given see. that some of them are going to hear about it this afternoon when I put this uh, <laughs> unedited version of the video out, then uh, we might uh, have of our recording. We might have volunteers then, uh, before before we know it. Brilliant. Yep. Cool. Excellent. Okay. Now let's crack on with uh, another aspect of Alien, and that's your much delayed homework. <laughs> yes, acid critical hits. Yep. For a while now, I've often thought that an acid splash critical might add some fun colour to the situation. But obviously, in the middle of a game, there isn't much time to make something up completely on the fly. So the game's rolled on, and I forgot all about it. But on the last show, Matt tasked me to look at Acid Splash again. After all, I did write the Acid Splash rules, so maybe that's right. I've also worked out some simple rules for electrocution effects, which I wrote into the scenario Alien Index. But in the game I ran online, the players didn't get that far. Uh, And I'll mention those a little bit later too. So the first thing to say about Acid Splash critical hits is this. We don't need them. There, that was a short essay. Hope you enjoyed it. Okay, okay, I can't leave it there. In trying to create an Acid Splash critical hit table, I found I was struggling to create something that I thought would actually add something to the game. I thought about the impact of the degree of the burn, with first degree burns doing very little, up to fourth degree burns that could melt hands or destroy ligaments and muscle, and cause joints to break. But I soon hit the wall of finding more than a handful of interesting elements to add to the table, with 36 options. Scarred face came to mind, which might mark you as someone who's fought a Zeno and lived to tell the tale, at least to those who have also encountered the Xenomorphs. And the idea of losing a hand or a foot has some fun character and role-playing opportunities. I wonder what line of prosthetics you can buy in an alien world, and how much they would cost. As an aside, this reminds me of a scene in Starship Troopers. I know, I know, this isn't alien canon, and I'm not about to get into yet another what-is-isn't-canon debate. The scene I have in mind is when Rico signs up for the mobile infantry, and the recruitment sergeant sits at his desk with his prosthetic arm. He proudly says, The MI made me the man I am today, as he pushes his chair back to reveal he's got no legs. Back to Acid Splash Crits. So there were lots of blank lines on my nascent critical hit table. Filling these in with interesting stuff was made even harder, as in Alien, you can only suffer a critical hit when you're broken. What's the most likely or common thing you'd suffer if you were burned by acid? Well, your skin would burn. The wounds would be agonisingly painful and would weep and tear at the slightest movement. Recreating that in any meaningful way in the game would bring huge negatives to any player. Role-playing lying still in a med pod while you're healing for six weeks wouldn't be the best role-playing experience. 
In addition to that, Acid Splash is deliberately deadly, and throwing in a critical hit table where only one in six options is deadly waters down that deadliness in an unhelpful way. So I was thinking we keep the death saves when you're broken by Acid, but add the colour of a critical hit. It was at that point that I started to think, why am I bothering? I'm not sure this is going to add anything, and making a table that simply recreates the actual crit table felt like a step too far. So I'm going to play it like this, because I think there's still some role-playing fun in making the splashes more detailed. When a PC is broken on acid, the rules as written apply. They need to make a death save every round until the victim gets medical help or dies. But if the character survives, I'm going to roll on the normal critical hit table to give me a location, and I'm going to make up an effect that impacts that location. If the result of the roll doesn't make any sense, then there's no long-lasting effect on the PC. This won't have any mechanical effect in the game, but might give the player some scarring. Burn their hair off permanently. Maybe lose a finger, an ear, or something else. That way we keep it simple, but as a GM, I have a way of randomly adding these effects. I'll give it a go and see what happens. Now, electrocutions. The danger of any electrocution will depend on the energy being discharged. A main system or power grid will deliver maybe a 15 dice attack, but a security fence or something like that might be anywhere from 10 upwards, with a livestock fence maybe 3 or 4. Anyone coming into contact with it will suffer the attack with as many base dice as decided by the GM, with a damage of 1. If they take any damage, they must succeed at a mobility test or be immobilised and still in contact with whatever's giving them the shock. In this case, they then take another attack at the same strength each and every round until they succeed at mobility, are pulled away by a friend, or die. A PC that touches another while they're being electrocuted will suffer an attack in dice equal to the original value minus 4, again with a damage of 1. If a PC is broken by the electricity, they must make a death save every round or die, unless they get medical aid. Well, I'm really surprised there, Dave, because, um, you know, you always, when we're having discussions over Tales of the Old West or something like that, you always make things a lot more complicated than they need to be. And I have to bring you back to say, let's just make it simple. But you've just made this really simple. <laughs> and I mean, part of it is a little bit of an excuse as to why I didn't do my homework after all. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I yeah. I at one point you say, I can't think of 36 options, which is, you know, entirely right and true and valid. And I think I'm not disagreeing with you, but you could have done six if you'd wanted to have a random table. Didn't need to have 2d6. I guess so. But then then you're creating a whole new sway of critical hit yeah, roles yeah. No, that I mean, are kind, of, un, are kind I, of unnecessary, really, I think. I agree with your conclusions, actually. You've, you've, you've made a very good argument here about why there shouldn't be one, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing. Um, uh, which, is, which is good and unusual. Which is good, yes. <laughs> yeah, it just struck me that, when, you know, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great just to have a table and you can get some really interesting descriptions of, of, of burn damage and stuff? But then actually, mm -hmm. when I started looking at it, um, it, yeah, it, it, it's really hard to, to come up with stuff that is worth putting in another table. 
Um, well, also stuff that is that adds fun to the game. Yeah, you exactly. make the really clear point here that um, you know most of these injuries are not in any way fun. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, okay, you know, uh, the critical table isn't particularly fun if you get a thing that kills you. <laughs> no, that's true. But actually, no, it is It is still fun to die in that way. I mean, you know, a, a lot of Alien is about dying in fun ways. Yes. But this is not a fun way, you know, to sit in a hospital bed in a burns unit, <laughs> uh, having your skin slowly peeled off and waiting for a skin graft yeah. is not a fun thing that we all want to do in a role-playing game. No, 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 absolutely. Yeah, so I so, so immediately felt that, you know, if, if a GM wanted to add that kind of colour, then, as I suggest... Why not just roll on the table as it stands for the location and make up something about that location? Because um, I think yeah. the idea of having a hand burned off or something or losing some fingers is interesting, you know, and maybe having a terrible scar that, as I say, might mm. might show, might, you know, might almost be a badge of honour uh, yeah. that you've fought yeah. these things like, and survived. Like, as you say, uh, those scenes in Starship Troopers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, although I think that the satire there was, <laughs> you know... Uh, yeah. It's about. It's been so good to me, but actually, it's ended up cutting off my legs and my arm. So it's, yes, but yeah. Um, so yeah. So I don't. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't think we need to overcomplicate things no. with another no. table for for, for acid, because diff, just different levels or different severities of being burned. Um, as you say, one isn't very much fun to play, and two doesn't make for great descriptive, um, uh, you know, descriptive uh, options really. Yeah. Cool. Oh, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> um, my brother was a paediatrician who dealt in burns, so he might he might be able to inform uh, uh, if you really needed to write a table like that. We could. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure we could get some descriptive terms for it, but again, not fun descriptive terms. <laughs> no, exactly. It's just like wallowing in um, in gore porn a bit, really. Yeah, um, well, and there may be gamers who like that sort of thing, but they're probably all playing Fatal or something like that. So, um, <laughs> so shall we move on? Yes, cool. Shall we move on to something that is fun? Let's move on and, to our wonderful And that interview. is our interview yeah. with Francesco and Martin. Here we are in the Hammam uh, again, and we have two wonderful guests uh, this time. This is creators in the Hammam, uh, not players. And we have the, uh, the wonderful Francesco Nepitello, and Martin, Martin Takaichi, uh, who are working on the One Ring uh, role-playing game that is uh, Francesco's uh, baby and is going to be published through Free League. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. As, as soon as you say that, Dave, I want to start straight into the questions on Francesco about how exactly it is his baby and, and, and all that <laughs> history. But well, we'll leave that... It's a little bit later. Let's do what we do with all our guests, first of all, and ask you both about your life in gaming. So which of you would like to go first with the first role-playing game they played and when they played it and in what circumstances? Martin? Uh, okay. <laughs> like youngest first or something? Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I, I think you've had most of the other Freely guys on here, right? So by now you know... You know the story. It's like I started with Draker and the Mourner, and then I went into Mute Mutant, and then I did it. So yeah, I'm I'm the same. It started the same for me. Um, I think actually the, the the thing that got me into role playing games was 
uh, dungeon quest or Drakborgen, as it was called originally in Swedish. Uh, and you know the the board game that then uh, uh, GW licensed and, and uh, printed as well. Uh, but mm-hmm. so I think that kind of got me into the the whole mind space. And then I read like the Narnia books and like Tolkien and stuff. And then of course Draco and the Mona, because that's every Swedish person born in the 80s or like late 70s have the same story. <laughs> uh, so I guess I, I can just like cut out like 10 years of that because it, for, for most of our international listeners, just like Swedish, early Swedish RPGs in Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's but interesting. Then, so you started out with Games Workshop's uh, Hero Quest or Dungeon Quest. Da- yeah, Dungeon Quest. Although, of course, I mean, the original is a Swedish game. Uh, and then uh, GW licensed it to, to print it in English. Oh, really? And now yeah. it's gone on to um, uh, Hasbro uh, just doing a new edition. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Fantasy Flight Games made a version of it. And th- of course, this isn't Hero Quest, this is Dungeon Quest, you know, slightly different, slightly different. but mm-hmm. also yeah. the same, you know. Um, but then now it's kind of gone all the way back and it's come back to, to be reprinted here in Sweden, but with also with English rules, with the like original components, basically. So you can mm-hmm. get the like original Swedish uh, 85, 86 uh, style components, which are quite... Mm. I mean, the, the GW mm-hmm. components are kind of colorful and stuff, whereas this yeah. is very much like slightly dreary and dark. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> as we like that's it here, you know, dreary course, dark. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for you here, so correct me no, if no. I'm wrong, but you joined Free League as a sort of board game specialist when yeah. <laughs> they were bringing out the, the board game version of Tales from the Loop. So is board games more your thing than role-playing games? I just know. Well, nah, it's just all the games, <laughs> all the games. I really, because my relationship with board games. I mean, that I played lots of board games as a kid, and then I started like discovered role playing games, and just a few years after that, I discovered like games workshop miniature games, and of course, all the time you have this, you know. Uh, uh, video games, computer games, all the like Atari and, and Commodore, whatever, Nintendo. So uh, it's always been like all of that. <laughs> and then you just kind of swerve inside this kind of thing. So um, then I had a few years like in the early noughties with uh, like almost only board games for a while. Um, and then I moved to Japan and then it comes like uh, not very much of anything. And then a bit more. Ah. So, you know, it's, it's all over the place, really. But mm-hmm. I think... Um, Yes, I, I do know board games quite well, and uh, especially when they brought me on, uh, they needed someone who had a, like a broad understanding of board games. And I, I was originally brought on already with the um, uh, Crusader Kings to work. Crusader the, like, Kings, uh, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they kind of just left me with Tales from the Loop, uh, which <laughs> was uh, interesting. And Japan, uh, you say you didn't do much gaming in Japan when you were living there? Uh, not at the start. Um, you know, I kind of moved there on my own and just yeah. kind of discovering things and didn't have much time for gaming because it was school and everything, stuff like that. But then towards the end, I, I found that like a fun little like board game group that had like meetings once a month that I, I used to go to and just try new games. So it was a fun idea. Yeah. So I but some otherwise, pretty crazy <clears throat> versions of uh, Call of Cthulhu. Which oh, I think yeah. is the most powerful role-playing or the most popular role-playing game in Japan. Yeah. But very manga 
it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I mean, you, you'd think that D&D would be dominate over the entire world, but in Japan, mm. for some reason, it's, it's Call of Cthulhu. Hmm. And it's not only that it's like Call of Cthulhu, they play Call of Cthulhu, but it's it's like Call of Cthulhu and the BRP engine has become similar to what the D20 is here in, in the West. Like hmm. they just play all kinds of games just using the, the BRP rule set and just creating their own things for it. So yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's quite different. Yeah, but of course, and speaking of Call of Cthulhu, that's one of the, I think Call of Cthulhu and uh, yeah, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay first edition, th- those were like the, the big um, English to English speaking games that uh, that I picked up in there in like mm. mid nineties and just played the hell out of. <laughs> so yeah, the BRP system is also was also important in in Sweden, right? I mean, oh yeah. The, yeah, the basis for the Drakarok Demona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's because uh, I remember in uh, the end of the 80s, early 90s, no, end of the 80s, I think, uh, there was a competing RPG company that translated Dungeons and Dragons into Swedish. But by mm. then, uh, Draka and Mona was so big and, and BRP was so big. And BRP is kind of, you know, it, it's simulationistic, kind yeah, of leaning yeah, that way. Yeah. Whereas D&D is a bit more um, uh, action-y and, um, well, hmm. mm. yeah, it's a bit different. So I remember reading the D&D book in Swedish being like, this this what what armor class why do you what is it harder <laughs> to hit you with armor on it's like this doesn't make sense but of course and brp another, and yeah. brp also looks more like a toolbox yes yes it's, yeah. it's more open and you can just take it and basically do whatever you want with that yeah, yeah that's very true it, it's very like just you have your attributes and you have your skills and then you just yeah build. it's very transparent yeah yeah. So yeah, I, I, I think here in England as well, actually, there's always been, I, although, you know, I'm sure D&D is the most popular game and has been forever, but definitely in our group, Dave, uh, you know, we moved on to RuneQuest pretty quickly, didn't mm. we? Um, and didn't play much D&D in our youth. And it strikes me that there's a big fan community of BRP players of every shade, be it Cthulhu yeah. or RuneQuest or whatever, yeah. here in the UK. Let's let's move over to you, though, um, uh, Francesco. Uh What's your life in gaming? How did that start? Not with Draka Ochtimona, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> what is, what is no. that in Italian? <laughs> Draka Ochtimona. <laughs> I don't know. We would probably have something like three damage. And <laughs> et. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, well, I start. I think I I always been very interested in, in, in gaming board games and everything. I was lucky to, I have two brothers, one is older and my older brother was um, very interested in, uh, in also creating stuff. So we always played with games that in some way were made at least partly by him. Mm-hmm. And, and he was older than me by three years, almost four years. So, uh, he was sort of a GM all the time with every mm. type of game, uh, with toy soldiers, whatever. We were inventing mm. rules before we actually discovered there were something like 3D historical gaming. We were mm. playing with toy soldiers, but with rules. And, and so in some ways, it was very, we were very close to the idea of role-playing game because we already played games that basically had a game master. But going to more practical things, we started playing war games uh, quite early. I mean, I think I was 11 or something like that because there was a 
a fantastic company in Italy called International Team that made these games there that were absolutely amazing from a graphical point of view. <clears throat> I mean, it, it, it was a time where you had game like from companies like SPI and Avalon Hill, where Avalon Hill's games looked like prestige versions of the SPI games because the SPI games are very, very basic, you know, with paper boards and very basic graphics. International team made everything that was from Avalon Hill like amateurish because they had fantastic illustrators and colorful maps. The game, the games were not as good as uh, the, the the look, but mm. they were enough to captivate uh, a whole generation of gamers. So we started to play with those, and then <clears throat> we discovered that something like Dungeons and Dragons existed, and we're talking about the the pre-red version of that, and and we got um, a, a, trans a, a very rough translation of the game, you know, like in photocopies. So we were playing the actual thing with the with the with the stack of photocopies next uh, to the table, and also about at the same time, maybe one year later or something like that, we discovered game books like the Warlock of the Firetop Mountain. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and that was it. The whole mix of war games and and game books, choose your own adventures, fighting fantasy game books, and and role playing games basically made. Uh, the ingredients of our gaming at the time. So we have, we still have, you know, notes of of dungeons made to play uh, using the fighting fantasy rules, like they were role playing games. So one, mm. the one that designed the dungeon is presenting it uh, to, to another player, and then we transitioned very, very smoothly to to role, to actual role playing games. So we started with D and D, and then personally, I very quickly moved to to what remained my main game for a long time, and that was Call of Cthulhu uh, mm. and and King Arthur Pendragon after. Oh, lovely game, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, uh, I was very much of a Chaosium type of, of gamer. Mm. I played those games until the early 90s, uh, almost exclusively, and, and then and then we also felt, you know, the... the, the the effect of games like the uh, White Wolf games. We started mm -hmm. playing games like Vampire. Yeah. Uh, we played mm -hmm. a long campaign of that. So um, we uh, basically what I'm saying is that we abandoned D&D quite early, uh, yeah. moving to, to other things. So uh, even if in Italy, market-wise, D&D was always the big player. Uh, no, no comparison to anything else. Um, and then uh, I think uh, we started, uh, I mean, uh, I met Marco here when we were in secondary school. So, uh, and by the end of the eighties, we were already thinking of doing something uh, in, in the, uh, about gaming professionally because we were making adventures and doing stuff. We wanted to make something in a creative field. So we started writing stories and then uh, we were very lucky because here in Venice, even it's a very small town compared to, to places like Milan or Rome, uh, it was maybe the only place where a, uh, a professional game design studio existed. Mm -hmm. Because here in Venice, uh, Alex Randolph, uh, the, the American game designer, lived for 30 years. And he uh, created a sort of, um, of, of a group 
of people interested in design. And they met in, a, in, what, in an osteria that what we call places like traditional pubs here mm. in Venice. They met there to play chess and go and other mm. games uh, weekly. So I got, and they were just like 30 meters away from my home. So <laughs> I, I, I actually stumbled into them and, and felt that, oh, these are people, these are people that is interested in what, in what we do, what we're interested in. And we met Leo Colovini, Leo Colovini, who's maybe one of the most prolific board game designers in Italy. Uh, he, he literally designed hundreds mm-hmm. of games. He was the pupil of Alex Randolph. Uh, he's been mm-hmm. raised by Alex Randolph from the point of view of game design. So we got in contact with that. We we brought to to these guys the interest in adventure games because they were more into abstract games and German type of of designs. And and then we had our opening because uh, after uh, we were invited because I, I I I was the one speaking the best English among them. And they invited me to Nuremberg in Germany to to translate for them to make to explain the games to the companies because they were they were bringing designs to to producers to to uh, publishers, and so they got me to introduce the games to, to the publishers. And when we came back from Nuremberg, it appeared that one of their secretaries left the studio, so I we were invited to take the place, and I I said to Marco Maggi that. Uh, uh, we could try that, and and of course he agreed to 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 accept the proposal, and and we worked for two years in Studio Jockey, this game design studio that still is in Venice, and is probably behind most of the designs coming out of Italy that go to 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 important publishers. So it was a very big, you know, uh, sort of uh, we learned uh, the ropes there uh from from basically yeah. people that were the best uh, it's like an amazing in, in apprenticeship <laughs> yeah yeah it, it was really uh absolutely priceless uh, yeah so. and and and, and you're, you're shedding light on an aspect of the euro games industry that that i never knew I never knew there was this hub of creativity in Venice. I really want to ask you loads more about that, but maybe maybe we'll do that in a, in a different episode. Um, so I guess, though, we're sticking with you, um, how did you take that step from that brilliant uh, game design apprenticeship to having the Lord of the Rings license? Oh, okay. That's a long arc. <laughs> <laughs> because you can, I mean, Consider that I was working with Marco there in Studio Jockey in the early 90s, like 1991. And uh, we published uh, The One Ring in 2011. Uh, in the in between, in, in these long years, <laughs> yes, in 20 years, something happened. I mean, we published our first game, and that's Lex Arcana, is, I was telling you this Roman mm-hmm. fantasy role-playing game in 93 because... Um, the guys in Studio Jockey, they realized that we were bringing something new to them, and it was this interest in, in, uh, in fantasy role-playing games, even if Leo Colovini already also was uh, a role-player. And so the, the, the boss of Studio Jockey, he decided that this could be something that, I mean, there was something to be done there. So without us knowing, he proposed uh, a mainstream publisher in Italy 
publishing games uh, to make a role-playing game. Uh, these guys accepted the deal. So we ended up designing a game for Studio Jockey, this, this game, Next Arcana, that uh, ended up being produced and distributed in, in most of the uh, big shops in uh, all, over, all over Italy. It was competing with D&D uh, as far mm -hmm. as distribution was concerned. And it was mm -hmm. a very, very big success. Then uh, Magic the Gathering happened quite uh, early on because it was the game was published in 93. And, and so the face of the gaming market changed completely. Mm. Uh, there was so it was so different that uh, we found immediately that continuing to work in role playing games was possibly non viable from, from an economical point of view. Uh, because first, you you do you design a game and 99% of the times it's in Italian it's in, in your own language so if someone wants to buy it they need to translate it completely mm -hmm. and 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 also the market was completely dominated by american products at the time as far as role playing games were concerned so profiting from our apprenticeship in in uh, in studio jockey we decided that it was better for us to move on to designing board games we already, of course, played a lot of board games. We liked and loved board games. So we had ideas to do that. So we started to do that. And so we focused on that for a long time. And I never thought I was going back to designing role-playing games, even if I was continuing to play, mm. uh, because role-playing games remained my, my main uh, source of, of enjoyment. I mean, I liked very deep thematic board games because of my love of role-playing games. Uh, I'm, I'm not a player of abstract games. I can see the fascination, but I don't play them. So mm -hmm. I like games that have a strong historical root or uh, fantastical or whatever. So I kept playing role-playing games. So the uh, lightning in you know, stroke again, when uh, we had, a, it's, a, it's a very complicated story because we were already working with sophisticated games, sophisticated games in British company that uh, owns the rights <laughs> to adventure games uh, take, um, drawn by uh, from the the, uh, uh, the novels of J.R. Tolkien. And in uh, 2004, uh, with a company that is now called Aris Games, but was a different company before, uh, we won a sort of a competition to to design a new strategy game based on the Lord of the Rings. Uh, we were competing against heavyweights like uh, Fantasy Flight and um, Eagle Games, for example, at the time was proposing a design. There were like four or five different designs competing for you know, this uh, slot for uh, a, a big strategy game with figures and stuff. And against all odds, uh, my design did, that I did with Marco Maggi and Roberto Di Meglio, uh, designer for Nexus Games, won the competition because uh, Robert Hyde, the, the, uh, the manager of Sophisticated Games, came mm. to Italy, saw us play the game. He liked that over all the other prototypes. And so, yeah, we were immediately, you know, plunged can I, can into I just this. pause you there. You mentioned sophisticated games. Uh, they're yeah. obviously um, your partners to Free League now, and they were to Cubicle 7 with the first edition. So it's sophisticated games that have got, if you like, the prime license for Lord of the Rings stuff from, from the Tolkien Family Trust. 
Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's even more complicated than that. Basically, <laughs> uh, it, yes. isn't it always? <laughs> uh, a long time ago, a long time ago, J.R. Tolkien sold the rights to his uh, work to Solzent. Solzent, who's the, the owner of uh, the company that now is called Middle Earth Enterprises. Right. Okay. Um, well, it used to be called Tolkien Enterprises. Middle Earth Enterprises has the rights to, to everything connected to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Uh, and this is a license that comes from the main license that is the movie making license, okay? Mm. And that's the license that was used to produce the, 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 the movie by Ralph Bakshi, the animated movie. Mm. And since that time, they kept this license and everything, <laughs> everything you have seen on the market so far <laughs> in the last decades comes from Middle Earth Enterprises. It doesn't come from the family, okay? Right. okay. So the only thing that comes license-wise that comes from the family now is the deal with Amazon. Uh, because very, very recently, the family that is called the Tolkien Estate, it's the, uh, the managing body that manages all the, the, uh, the, the literal, the, mm. the literary uh, yeah. um, heritage of, of yeah. J.R. Tolkien is the Tolkien Estate. That's the only thing that comes from them. It's the Amazon license. <laughs> all the rest, the movies by Peter Jackson, all the toys and games, everything you've seen comes from Middle Earth Enterprises. A sub-license of that is the adventure gaming license that is held by sophisticated games since many, many years. Mm -hmm. And luckily for us, we got it. Uh, we got the, 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 the option to, to do uh, a board game on the Lord of the Rings by sophisticated games. So we created the War of the Ring. Uh, War of the Ring is this big strategy game with hundreds of figures in there that recreates the whole story of, of the Lord of the Rings. What it has to do with the One Ring? Uh, it has to do the fact that uh, since War of the Ring became a very big su success mm. and it's still selling in the tens of thousands today mm. after uh, 16 years, that it's something that is quite difficult to do with a board game, Mm -hmm. uh, basically, we attracted the attention of a Spanish company that was interested. In that. That's where it becomes complicated. <laughs> the Spanish company who was interested in contacting sophisticated games to make a role-playing game. Because at the time, Decipher, that was the US company doing the role-playing game, just mm -hmm. dropped it. And nobody was taking it. Nobody yeah. was interested in doing a role-playing game. Or at least nobody realized that it was open for the taking. Mm -hmm. So this Spanish company came to me in the morning. They called me uh, and they told me, what about uh, what if you designed a game, a role-playing game based on the Lord of the Rings? And I was like that, you know, <laughs> how did you answer <laughs> to that? I, I wasn't really interested in going back to designing role-playing games because it's very hard. And, yeah. and especially it is very hard to design a role-playing game based on the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> because it's something that, I mean, everyone has yeah. his own idea or her own idea on how it should be and everything. And also I'm not a native English speaker. So it could be also seen as a disadvantage uh, to, to approach something that in some ways is seen very much as a sort of a uh, very English thing, you know, mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings. So they came to us for that. And to make a long story short, eventually the Spanish company dropped out of the picture, but we convinced sophisticated games to do the game anyway. And 
uh, here comes Angus Abranson, who was uh, one of the associates of Cubicle 7, that uh, was friend with Robert Hyde of, of Sophisticated Games. And they got together and they decided, what if you design the game and we publish it? Angus Abrasson seems to be the glue that holds the whole UK game. <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, he, he, he brought Twilight 2000 to, uh, to yeah, League. League as well. So <laughs> yes. get him on the show at some point. Ah, the spider in the middle of the web, right? Yeah, I think so. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so, so he, he brought you together with um, Cubicle 7 and Sophisticated Games. And yeah. um, long story short, that was a pretty big success. Um, people yeah. love the game. Now, just for our fans who have not encountered Lord of the Rings, or the One Ring, I should say. Playing, most of them, yeah. I'm sure, have encountered Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. who are, you know, most of our fans, I imagine, listen to our show because it's mostly about the uh, Zero Engine. So sell to me the idea of them uh, going out to buy this new version of Lord of the Rings, uh, sorry, of the One Ring. The One Ring. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's very organic, actually, <laughs> because uh, I think that Free League was possibly the only company, uh, yeah, that's uh, hyperbolic, but it no, 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 it's true, it's true. <laughs> it's one of the few companies that didn't come to us to do the game when Cubicle 7 dropped the license. Mm -hmm. We had proposals from many, many publishers, uh, and some of them are among the biggest there mm -hmm. are. Uh, and, and, but they didn't. Uh, I knew them because I was a fan. I was playing uh, Forbidden Lands, for example, and I, mm -hmm. I really did like uh, Tales from the Loop. I liked a lot the, 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 the design ethic behind those games. I liked the way they were uh, they were packaged, the way they were designed, and the and the art and everything. So sometimes in in the corner of my mind, it, it, the idea of going to them was there, mm -hmm. and and then we met we met in Essen, I think, yeah. uh, a few years back, and because I was go I'm, I'm going to Essenspiel and Nuremberg. The Spiel werden Wesse since 20 years, every year, apart mm. from uh, this year. Last, yeah, last one, yeah, yeah. 2020. <laughs> but uh, so, so when I met them, I met them very much just as a fan, just to, to, to talk with the people that was designing games that we liked. And, and we had a good chat. Uh, we, I mean, I even have a picture on my Facebook timeline that I'm together with Martin and Nils. Caroline mm -hmm. from the company just because, not because we were doing any business. Mm -hmm. And then when I, we basically had already a deal with another big company, I don't know, all the pieces of the puzzle just came together and, and we said, mm -hmm. freely would, should be the, the publisher for the game because they're just the best uh, company for the project. I don't mean that the other companies were not good but Free League was really the good, the best home for mm. uh, for the One Ring. As far as the, the the design of their games, as far as the art they 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 put together with the um, with their games and so on. So I was there thinking that I should have done something to 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 bring the two things together, but maybe it was too late. 
in fact, when I proposed this to, I decided that I had to do something and I talked with Robert Hyde and Robert Hyde in the beginning was, no way, it's too late. <laughs> You're ready. We, we don't have a, 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 deal. Deal, a, a signed deal. We don't have it signed yet, but it's basically done. But I don't know, I insisted and insisted mm -hmm. so far that, that uh, to the point that I, uh, Robert decided to go and see them uh, in Stockholm. And that was it because Robert was struck like I was by the people, by the, by the things they do and everything. And he felt, okay, I totally agree that, uh, that that's the company that we should uh, get together with, with the game. And, and we made sure that it happened. We had mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to ruffle some feathers in, in, in <laughs> but you know, for, with other people. But eventually, they they understood that, and I'm very much convinced to to this day that it was the best solution. So, Martin, you were there at um, at Essen when Francesco uh, first came to the booth. Um, yeah, had had any experience of the One Ring at that point, or or War of the Ring? Um, Yes, of course. Yeah, all of it. Um, I mean, I played the first edition of War of the Ring. Uh, when was it released, Francesco? 2004. 2004, yeah. Yeah, that's because I remember playing it before I went to, to Japan, which has become kind of a you know, mental like time stamp in my brain. <laughs> anyway, I remember playing before I went to 2005, so that, that tracks. Uh, right, okay. So yeah, we played that quite a bit. And then of course, when I learned that there's a new role-playing game uh, and it's made by this guy, Francesca. I remember that name. Wasn't he the one who made War the Ring? <laughs> oh, this is like a perfect match. So I was very excited about, about the new edition because um, I mean, we, we always had, we always had the, the Little Earth role-playing game from Ice and, uh, uh, and mm -hmm. also I think the Decipher game, uh, I mean, it, it it did a lot of things not very good. I mean, the errata was like 10 or 15 pages or something. I don't know. But it, it still, I mean, it had some cool ideas, but it was still not, not quite there. And then uh, I remember reading The One Ring in 2011, was yeah, 10 years ago. Uh, and um, being like, yeah, this, now we're finally here. It's like th third time's the charm. You get the right people on it and you get the right art. And it's like, it's, yeah, it's a fit together. So that was great. Um, of course, uh, when uh, when we met up, uh, just as Francesco felt like a, a fan of Free League, uh, me and Nils, we were like, oh, it's Francesco, Nipitello, <laughs> the famous one. <laughs> so yeah, it was very much like a uh, same thing from us. We were just uh, just as happy to take pictures and uh, and uh, talk with you and huh? uh, uh, yeah, and Marco and uh, Robert as well. A little bit. Oh, so, so when Thomas said that he was about to strike a deal and steal this game out from an unnamed company uh, <laughs> who had almost signed signed a deal um did well did did he tell you um at that early stage or did did you only find out a bit later after well it was no done? actually uh, it was kind of almost the other way around since since me and uh, francesco started talking about it firsthand i remember just oh, right. a, a, just a quick message i was we were just talking about some a few other things from essen like uh, like uh, tying up a little threads here and there and it was like uh, Martin, what do you think about Free League doing the One Ring? <laughs> uh, well, personally, I'd say yes, but of course, we'll have to run it by the rest of the team. <laughs> so had, that had is you, kind of the genesis. Had you and Nils come away from Essen thinking, 
Oh, it's great talking to Francesca. If only we could get to do the one ring <laughs> without really thinking it was a... a yeah, you know, I mean, because I remember yeah. when when C7 uh, uh, kind of, when they when they dropped it uh, and we just, uh, I mean, we always have this like, you know, office chats about these kind of things. Whenever there's something happening mm. in the RPG world, in the gaming world, we always like huddle around the, the, the coffee makers and, oh, yeah, you know, and they dropped this. Well, what do you think? <laughs> oh. And we talk about license mm. and stuff. But uh, these... Uh, yeah, it was kind of those one of those like yeah, it would be cool to do that, but no, yeah, no, uh, we don't really have the <laughs> time or the resources. Like, I don't know. Uh, so we just kind of let it slide. Uh, we have so much, mm. much other stuff going on. But then of course, when we got this little message, like everything just came back. I was like, oh, can we do this? Maybe we can. And <laughs> yeah, and of course, in the end, there's a happy ending, and we are doing it, and it's amazing. Uh, it's really, <laughs> yeah. It's like I, uh, it's it's interesting, like tracking back twenty years and seeing like how these thing kind of things kind of move and come together. So, yeah. Now we're very excited. This is a brilliant story. I'm loving this. This, <laughs> this is going to be one of our best interviews we've ever done, hasn't it, Dave? <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. Um, so, let's not dwell. I mean, it was really newsworthy because Cubicle Seven. We know we're working on a second edition, and then suddenly. It was dropped, and I'm not going to ask you about any of the reasons why that happened. I'm sure there's confidentiality clauses up to the wazoo there. Um, but, you know, it was news. I remember everybody going, what's happening with this? You know, they've dropped this hot property. What What's going to happen next? Well, you've told us a little bit about what happened next. But I guess um, you're already thinking about a second edition, Um Francesco, so what were you wanting to change for the second edition? Well, um, the game was already uh, had already, you know, almost ten years under its belt at the time. So, um, and also the game grew uh, as it was published, meaning that in the beginning uh, we were not, uh, at least me and Robert, in the beginning were not really keen in making uh, a game, a full game line full with supplements and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it was more, we're giving the tools to play in Middle-earth, the people, and they will then eventually work it out using the, the direct sources. And and then Cubicle 7, of course, brought the, the a more professional point of view in, in um, allowing us to do a full thing. But the game, in some ways, wasn't ready for that. So the, the rule set evolved through the supplements. So mm -hmm. uh, with the second edition, the idea was, okay, we're going to recap things a little bit to, to smooth a few things here and there, to repackage it and, and make it uh, brand new for a new generation of players and whatever. So uh, in, a, in a way, a sort of a reorganizing things. So um, there were quite a few things, you know, that, you know, uh, game designers always would, I mean, would tweak things to no end uh, with their games. A game is never ready 100% when you're designing them. So, uh, and maybe that's even more true for role-playing games where uh, things are so flexible. Uh, so, I mean, so much is open to the interpretation of players um, so we had a number of things that we wanted to achieve with second edition, and and we tried to do that with uh, under the, the the you know the, the 
the period that we were working on it with, with Cubicle 7. Uh, also, Cubicle 7 changed as a company. So we were approaching also a new uh, approach from the graphical point of view uh, because uh, people that were working there as art directors and they were not working there anymore. So we're looking to change a lot of things. Now, what happened after Cubicle 7 dropped it was that I had more time to, to actually uh, consider what to change in there. And I, I had the chance, you know, to take a deep breath and, and look at the, at the game as it was uh, more honestly, in a way, like I had less pressure uh, at, the moment, at that moment because I didn't have a deal. So I, okay, let's do this even more deeply. Than, than anticipated. And so I think I went back uh, on a few decisions. We, we, we looked more at, at the, uh, what we did with first edition and, and the game had a sort of a more personal and intimate scope, mm -hmm. uh, very much the idea of uh, people like Frodo uh, Baggins or Sam Gamgee that didn't travel much in their lives. So they had seen only a few things. So it's something that is, it was very much present in first edition where we said, this is a time before mass communication, before traveling. So everything is new. Uh, everything is very parochial, is very, very, you know, you, you know something that is just away a few miles away from your home. You don't know much about the world. We wanted to bring back that idea of wonder uh, mm. in the world of Middle Earth. And something of that was being lost in second edition because I don't know if you know that, but we were moving the focus of the geographical focus of the game over to Gondor. So to a place where that is bigger and has more, you know, traveling between distant places. So the more of it, of an idea of a sort of a ancient kingdom that is big and has to do with complicated, I don't know, laws and customs. So it moved away from the idea of first edition where we were in Mirkwood. In yeah, the north. yeah, yeah. And, and in, where in that first it was... rule book, that feels surpri surprisingly small when, when, when you come to it. No, you know, having having experienced Lord of the Rings as a whole, and you're coming back to effectively not even all of the Hobbit, as it were, and um, <laughs> and you've got that little world, which actually always intrigued me that mm. you know that it did feel a little bit like you were you were stepping out on those first steps of an unexpected journey, um, and and it was I, I really like that intimate atmosphere you get from that first game. So you're you're going to try and do the same thing again. With this second yes. edition? Yes, because, you know, as controversial as it might have been in the beginning, uh, before the game was out, we made extensive play tests and we had some very uh, criti critical reactions to that narrow focus because people were expecting more of a game like Middle Earth were playing from Iron Crown back in the day. Uh, big maps and uh, big source books about big regions. But uh, as a player, I always felt that that point of view was very much what made Middle Earth unplayable because it made it only available to the people who wanted to have a sort of an encyclopedic approach. Mm. People that 
were able to to you know speak Quenya and and <laughs> Sindarin and and so they were more interested in the world building than actually living inside that mm. world because that perception is is alien to everyone who actually lives if if, if they actually lived in Middle Earth <laughs> uh, no one had that uh, sight. That, uh, no, none, none of those characters possibly... have read Lord of the Rings, have they? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So maybe only Gandalf could have <laughs> a, a, a perspective like that, but he was a thousand years old. So, I mean, it, mm -hmm. that was a different thing. We were not playing that type of character. So we, dis we wanted to have that focus very much, you know, narrow. Uh, but in the beginning, we, we had some resistance. But eventually, the game was successful, and people praised it exactly for that, exactly for the fact that, the game actually allowed you to experience Middle Earth as someone who's who's living in Middle Earth, not as a reader who wants uh, to play reader yeah. of the stories that wants to play in the Lord of the Rings. So we went back to that because we were feeling that Gondor was taking too much away from that. It was too cosmopolitan. It was too mm -hmm. wide. Uh, and actually, we realized that we were missing possibly the main focus. I mean. Eriador. Eriador is where everything begins in The mm -hmm. Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings. It's, it's a land that is desolate. There, it seems that there's nothing in there apart from ruins, but it's very much the, 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 uh, the perfect example of an adventuring world. Mm -hmm. It's something that when you, when you cross the threshold of your home and you're on the road, you're going in the wild. Mm. So you're immediately in an adventure. If you think that uh, the, the fellowship, I mean, the hobbits, when they leave uh, in the Lord of the Rings, when they leave the Shire, before they get to Rivendell, they get to, to into the old forest. They find the, the old Willow Man. They find Tom Bombadil, the Barrow Whites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, uh, I mean, they find adventure under every every stone in in the route mm. to, to Rivendell. So why there's, can't there's we do great, the same? There's the great moment where where they they reach the point where Sam stops. It's one more step, and I'm further from home than I've ever been. And that's right yeah, at that's the start. The, that's right at the start, which is great. Yeah, that's exactly the point. I mean, that's exactly we're not uh, putting you in the shoes of someone who's omniscient, who knows everything in the the of the writer uh, of, of the of the of the book. You must go back to where you were when you were first reading stories where you didn't know anything about Gondor before you get to, to, to Rohan and they mention it. Or maybe you go to the Council of Elrond and they just mention it for, as a faraway place. So you, you need to scale back a little bit. So yes, that's the main change um, that uh, we're moving from, from Mirkwood to, to Eriador. In a way, it is like moving from The Hobbit towards the Lord of the Rings, because we are moving where, uh, in the place where the, the, the wheels are start to turn, uh, setting, you know, what will become the War of the Ring years later. We're still decades away from that, but already things are moving in that direction. It's like, you know, an avalanche that is starting to, to build up. And the first version of the game sort of started um, sort of five years after the Battle of Five Armies. Are you... Are you moving through time slowly with each supplement, or do you plan to to get closer and closer to the War of the Ring um, as as it, 
as the publication continues? Yeah, we're uh, we're basically acknowledging acknowledging the existence of everything that was published before uh, in this way uh, by having the the, the starting date uh, in the new game uh, about uh, is two nine sixty five that it's um, sixteen years later than than uh, the the uh, the previous game. So mm -hmm. if you played extensively with the uh, with the One Ring first edition. You don't need to to go back, or right. uh, you can just possibly, probably continue, or a good percentage of the players will just be able to continue. the mm. the, the big campaign that we had in the previous edition of the game, the Darkening of Miracle, ended into 977. So in that case, you might need to go back a bit. But you know, mm. the the starting date in the game isn't uh, isn't so uh, rigid. I mean, it's a date that uh, is good for reference, but there's a wide period in there between two, about 20 years where nothing really big happens uh, that you need to to uh, to recognize in, in your story. That That's why we chose the time period between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, because there are so many areas where you can make your sandbox, you can create your own campaign because there is plenty of room uh, for your heroes to do something memorable that doesn't interfere with the with the with the story of the Lord of the Rings. So yeah, that's about the uh, the chosen date. So so, but broadly, um, Francesco, you're you're saying that the rules aren't changing all that much. You're merely bringing together a lot of the stuff that has appeared in other supplements in the second edition. Well, uh, we were discussing this this morning with Martin, and actually there's more than we anticipated, meaning that uh, players of first edition will find a lot uh, of new things in there. Uh, what I think we did uh, successfully is to uh, bring out what was good in first edition and the push more into the shadow was was bad mm -hmm. uh, or completely eliminated in general uh let's say that we were using the same toolbox uh so we just uh, decided to to build a few things a little differently but the main elements are absolutely the same so uh I cannot claim anymore that you can play directly with your own character from first edition into second edition. Right. Uh, you will have to make adjustments uh, between first edition and second edition. But again, as we were saying about BRP before, the game system behind the One Ring and the second edition of the One Ring is quite transparent. There is not some mechanical secret or some complicated mathematics in there that will escape people. I mean, people that are really interested in that, in making a smoothless translation between one and the other, will clearly find a way to, we will give guidelines also, but it's really not, we are not changing the way dice are rolled. We're not changing the way uh, the main mechanics work. Everything is super familiar to everyone who has played first edition, but the details change. Brilliant. Okay. Now, Martin, uh, one of the other things that Francesco mentioned was uh, a, a change in the graphic style, uh, which was already uh, being forced on them with, with, with 
with Cubicle 7 because of the change of staff there. But obviously, one of the things that we all love about Free League is <laughs> their amazing product design um, in terms of graphics and, and formats and paper choice and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Um, and so, personally, I'm I'm quite excited. Uh, forgive me, Francesco, but the thing about um, the Cubicle Seven edition is it looks lovely. The illustrations are gorgeous, but there's a certain style there that always dated it for me. In, uh, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, fantasy book pages with, and, you know, and so the carved mm. wood around the, edge of the pages is a, a thing that slightly wound me up. Um, we're actually making it out of carved wood (laughs) (laughs) but um but martin is there anything you can share about the thoughts for the Hmm. product design and the paper choice and all that sort of stuff that gets a whole bunch of us fans excited at a freely product (laughs) yeah that's one of the we actually started talking about that quite early um I remember me and and christian who's making most of the layout choices uh and of course martin grip who as our main illustrator and also uh, n- not not officially an art director, but you know, kind of uh-huh. different hats and all that. So we we're kind of discussing this thing and how to proceed and what kind of look we want to have. And and uh, as you say, we wanted to to make it like different from from the first edition. And and because uh, I I I quite like the first edition, the kind of tome feeling, but it felt like yeah, that's that's the first edition, and now the new edition will be something new. So we went back and looked a lot at, uh, at uh, of course, Tolkien's original drawings, uh, his little like doodles, the way he wrote stuff, the colors he used, things like that. And also um, a lot of like classic fantasy and kind of medieval adventure art from, from the beginning of, beginning of the 19th century, uh, sorry, uh, 20th century. Um, so, cause we, yeah, we, trying to kind of find a little bit like a classic feel to it. Um, mm-hmm. Like it would be something you'd read and, and um, mm. uh, something you, you, that, that feels like it's of its age in a way, uh, but uh, also quite clean. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, Christian is very like he wants clean designs and um, yeah and I, i'm i'm fully behind yeah, you exactly yeah, we're <laughs> yeah really, we like that so uh <laughs> you it won't be long now until you can see some some examples of his uh, layout mm-hmm. and stuff like that but yeah we, we're basically taking inspiration from from um from tolkien himself and then of course uh, alvaro is coming in alvaro is the, the uh, um uh, alvaro tapia sorry yeah who's the illustrator mm. for the for the black and white art in the in the books and he's also yeah done and uh, uh lands. Oh, of course yes yeah, um, lands i mean his, for, his, for, his yeah. portfolio is big and deep so uh yeah. mm. but he's, he's also uh, done a great work of like conceptualizing what our version of middle earth looks like he's, he's ha- he has this bible of like collecting all kinds of little snippets of information from the different books about how things should look and stuff like that so uh, he's been a good worker about creating like different kinds of little details for the layout. So we're going to have a, a really like clean, but also kind of organic looking book um, that kind of harkens back to the original drawings or like doodles and details made by Tolkien himself. Um, and uh, yeah, I think if you like what our books usually look like, you're going to like this one, I think. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, what your books usually look like is like no other books that you produce. So that's, that's not much of a clue. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, I think, okay, yeah. If I should compare it to something in our catalog, I may be uh, more along the lines of Forbidden Lands than uh, that's what Simbaru, I was for. for example. Okay. <laughs> okay. I can live with that. It's a, it's a, maybe it's a bit of a cross between the two. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. having... I mean, the pieces by by Martin Grip that yeah, of are course. so distinctive, together with with Alvaro's stuff, are mm. making for a very very interesting combination. Oh, just to add some little details on the story, um, the graphics were very much um, one of the uh, elements why we were so happy to work with the with Great League. Mm. Uh, I'm a very very big fan uh, of of Alvaro Tapia's work. Uh, uh, and um, <laughs> actually it was a funny conversation with Thomas uh, because I was asking before we had a deal if Alvaro was contracted ex exclusively with them with Free League or not or if he would be available <laughs> and, and Thomas basically responded uh, well uh, if you're going to give the game to us well, I can pretty, mu pretty much assure that Alvaro will be working on it. <laughs> right. Yeah, because there was a moment where I, when I thought that the game was gone for good to another company. Yeah. So uh, that was a moment where uh, it was the moment to, to, I mean, Thomas tried to add some reasons why we should go back on the decision. It was not my decision event in the end because I, I would have been happy to do that. Right but, but was that the conversation that that planted you spoke earlier of it almost mm. being done and then you suddenly thought really freely with the people that ought to be doing it was that triggered by that conversation about the artist uh no we started that already because uh i mean it was a bit my fault because i was uh, I was behind the first uh, decision to go to the other company uh, mm -hmm. because I had a good contact. I, I put Robert Tide together with them and I was very happy. And I mean, it would have been very good anyway. But then, you know, I had this worm in my <laughs> mind telling me that that that, that uh, Free League would have been even better. And so I, I, I had to, you know, try to push in that direction inch by inch. And so I started talking with Thomas, even if I felt it was almost hopeless. Mm -hmm. uh, then they, of course, given, uh, having given their uh, approval to the idea, I went back to Robert and tried to push. So yeah, mm -hmm. that was an element of the conversation, the art. <laughs> so that's brilliant. And um this, we're recording this about a week before uh, our listeners will get to hear it. But we can, I think, reveal some exciting news about upcoming announcements. Yeah, there should be an announcement coming within days of this episode dropping. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, there should be because uh, you're publishing on like uh, Saturday or Sunday, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. In that case, I think that's what most people yeah. pick it up. All right, it'll just be a few days. But what I can tell you at least is uh, there will be a Kickstarter for the One Ring, uh, and it mm -hmm. will be in February. So it's quite soon. Uh, and um, yeah, it's going to um, it's going to be, I think, one of our bigger ones. It's going to be, have quite a bit of stuff in it uh, besides just the core book. So... Um, 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, I think we, we also already mentioned the starter set, which will, of course, be, be a part of it, uh, which focuses entirely on uh, as I mean, uh, Francesco. Uh, we haven't he, mentioned he, the starter set. So tell us, tell us, Martin, about the starter set. Oh yeah. Okay. Yes, that's true. We haven't talked about it here, but let me tell you. <laughs> um, as Francesco said, he wanted to like refocus on the uh, on the uh, regular people of, of Middle Earth and like the ones who don't travel far and wide. And I mean, who better than the hobbits, right? So, <laughs> so we have the starter set really going. Really, I mean, really doubling down on this, <laughs> uh, where you actually you, you all play as hobbits in in uh, in and around Hobbiton and uh, the Shire and. Uh, kind of introducing the setting and the world through the eyes of the hobbits and uh, their adventures uh, in the Shire. And, and yeah, this will, of course, be a part of the Kickstarter. So, mm. uh, And some other stuff, but that'll come in a few days. And I remember, mm. uh, Francesco, that your very first printing of the first edition came with exclusive um, dice uh, with, with, with the... Uh, yeah, I can't think what it's called. The the feet dice, the tw the, yeah. the twelve sided feet dice, and the, and the six sided dice. Um, and then I was always a bit disappointed because I hadn't picked up on it then. And then a new printing came out. It didn't have the dice, and I always felt oh, I missed out on that. Are there going to be dice in this Kickstarter? <laughs> there will be dice. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always dice. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the, you you do need the well, you don't need them, but the the uh, the one ring dice. I really like those. It's like nice and tactile and you have these like symbols yeah so of course yeah dice yeah ice and maps and ooh, yeah good stuff i wanted to ask one thing to to add one thing about the starter set because i think that the starter set uh summarizes well uh the approach that yeah. we have to 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 the lord of the rings and the hobbit uh from the point of view that yes you will be playing hobbits but <laughs> these are not uh any hobbit it's you're going to play historical hobbits i mean hobbits that are actually taken from the stories so okay. uh, for example you'll be playing drogo baggins who's the father of frodo and and even lobelia baggins that is, will become lobelia sacred baggins so uh, names that the readers of the lord of the rings are familiar with and we are in some ways making that as an example on how you can uh, weave stories out of an existing world, literary mm -hmm. world, uh, without hurting the literary world, but in some ways uh, further ex giving it even an additional depth to mm. it by, by uh, you know, giving, you know, some insight in what happened before The Lord of the Rings uh, so uh, I think that that's one of the things that the, the, the One Ring achieves is, is making you feel part of that literary creation instead of that's simply brilliant. being, you know, a nice fantasy backdrop uh, and rich, uh, but it's actually something that becomes a story mm -hmm. and you are part of that. You're making well, me want to play it now. Which <laughs> <laughs> is the point, I guess. Yes. I think that's I think that's really interesting interesting because it came sort of something came to mind when you were talking about that earlier, uh, Francesco, about um trying trying to 
to sort of offset the the metagaming that you know that players will know what happens in Lord of the Rings because they will have read it and seen the movies and all the rest of it. And it's a problem that some other free league games, you know, Alien in particular, you know, it gets talked about because everybody knows about aliens. Um, I love the idea that focusing down on you know those small stories with those yeah. people who are still you know really important. Have you given any thought about um, how you kind of can manage or how a GM can uh, can, can deal with the issue of players having all that knowledge? Uh, yes. We have a few hints and guidelines in the core uh, volume uh, about what it is uh, to, 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 make the G- to be the GM in a game like that and how to create uh, stories that do not feel they're just, you know, uh, secondary things in comparison to, to the main yeah. uh, storylines told in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings. And one of them, a uh, few of them concern the fact that uh, Tolkien just, uh, I mean, of course, he told the main story of the age because the quest for the ring for Mount Doom is the story of the, mm-hmm. the, the third age because it's yeah. going to conclude the age and everything. So barring the fact that you are not going to play that, uh, before that, a lot of things happen uh, that can be just seen as examples of a lot of other similar things. I mean, Tolkien himself, when he was writing the, the, the Lord of the Rings, uh, created, I mean, inserted Tom Bombadil, who was an existing character, and the Barrow Whites, mm. just because he needed an adventure between mm-hmm. uh, the Shire and Rivendell. So he was doing exactly what a game master in the One Ring is doing. <laughs> Uh, he's just uh, putting something in the middle of a journey. And and if he could do it, put the Barrow Whites and Tom Bombadil of all the characters. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, why can't you do the, You can do the same thing. And there's, I mean, it's funny because otherwise you think that they were so unlucky uh, to, to meet all those adventures between Rivendell and Anobiton. Uh, it means that the place is ripe for adventure opportunities yeah and that's what we're doing and uh, and it also there's you know the the loftiest goal of the game that was there since first edition is that if you're going to play for decades of game time playing the one ring and now you started in into nine into 946 with first edition now you will play into 965 with second edition eventually when we get to the War of the Ring time, uh, and there is the Council, the Council of Elrond, uh, and you know these people appear out of nothing because people like Boromir and Legolas and Gimli uh, were basically invented on the spot. Uh, I mean, they could be anyone instead of Legolas could have been something else, yeah. someone else. There, if you have been playing for decades in that gaming world, instead of having Gimli. Son of Gloin, it could be your own character because he would have a rich backstory as Gimli or even richer. (laughs) So, so, yeah, you know, the loftiest goal is that one day you might be possibly able to play the quest for for Mount Doom yourself with characters that won't feel out of place. Yeah. That's brilliant. brilliant. I love it. It's brilliant. And perhaps we should end this interview. So thank you very much, Martin. And thank you very much, Francesco. We must talk to you again at some later stage. Of course.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Cool. Well, that was excellent. I mean, it was such a good opportunity and it was such a good interview. Really great talking to these people about these games. And um, yeah, really looking forward to uh, an announcement in the not too distant future about the Kickstarter. Yeah, Um, as Martin said, I think if you're listening to this uh, uh, shortly after we put it out, then there is an announcement coming. Very Hopefully soon. within days. Um, so, and yeah. if you if you're the sort of person that leaves me uh, leaves us on your list of un, you know un, unlistened to podcasts until the end of the week, well, there you go. Did you see the announcement? <laughs> <laughs> well, assuming it, it um, happens as 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 we've been tipped, but uh, yes, who who yeah, but yes, yeah, so and great. then a Kickstarter in February, which should be a very interesting one. So Martin's Martin's hinting at the fact that there will be a load of stuff on yes, this Kickstarter. Very much so. I wonder if they're aiming for the sort of Modifia style Kickstarter where there's millions of deluxe editions and and dice and different bundles you can buy. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't I, I don't know. I mean they don't tend to go the full Modifius with no, their they Kickstarters. Do not. Um so and I'd kind of for me I'd kind of hope that they didn't go too far, but I guess there will be a lot of goodies that will be uh, included and then clearly, it's going to do well, isn't it? So they're going to be smashing through stretch goals like uh, like nobody's business. Yeah. Um, so well, I, know, I think I'm going to buy this edition. I might buy this edition as well. Yeah, I think I was saying. I mean, I've, I've, I've I don't think I've ever played a campaign in Middle Earth. I've played the odd scenario. Um, I don't know which, or oh, years and years ago, I don't know which system that was in. It might well have well, been. Did I run one? It might I, well have been I, a homebrew. As, so the original Middle Earth role playing was based on Rollmaster. Yeah. And indeed, I think originally the sort of, there were Middle Earth supplements that came out for Rollmaster. I mm. think I got those before they announced Middle Earth role playing, which is a kind of stripped down version of Rollmaster. That might well be it then, yeah. So I um, think I had an Isengard supplement, and maybe I ran an adventure out of that, but I honestly can't remember it if I did. But but talking to these guys had, had really got me interested in playing in Middle Earth again. Actually, yeah, and I, I haven't felt that for a very long time. Actually, for for decades. So that's, well, maybe that's Dave, a good, you should buy the starter thing. set. <laughs> well, maybe I'll just do what I normally do and and go for the go for the core the core book. And some bits and bobs that go with it. Yeah, uh, that, that's my that's where I tend to go. Um, um, and I, yeah, I think referencing our conversation of a little while ago, I'll probably if the start if there is a starter set as one of the pledge levels, I'll probably skip that. Hmm. It'd be interesting if there is if it is one of the pledge levels. Um, does and having a starter set or the full works, you know, what sort of proportion of um, Buyers will say, "Oh no, I'll just go for the starter set." Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to watch that if that I, happens. I guess it depends up on on the price point, doesn't it? How how expensive yeah. is the is the full kit going to be? Um, but then, yeah, as with Kickstarters, you get different pledge levels. So yeah, it'll you know it's interesting as well in that uh, yeah you know I I'm not interested in the Simbroom starter set because you run Simbroom anyway, um, and I've got a PDF uh, player's guide. That's yeah. all I need. Yeah. Um, if I were buying this, would I buy the starter set just because it had this Hobbiton adventure in it that sounds like great fun? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 
have to wait and see when the we'll have to wait and out. see <laughs> we'll wait and see cool now we uh, will have gone on we for almost on. two hours here so um what's <laughs> yeah. happening on our next show well show 150 um oh is that a significant number yeah it seems to be you know uh we we'll to do something a bit special for that then. So I think we should do something special. Um, any ideas? Okay. Should, <laughs> should uh, we, yeah, this is just. We've been teasing this, uh, and and we've got we've got a plan for 150. Maybe we'll have a little look back on 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 the story of the podcast, so that um, Dave can reminisce in a way that I stopped him doing today. But our, <laughs> our main 150th thing is we thought we might have a competition. Yeah. And the, we thought we'd have a scenario writing competition. Um, I haven't worked out what the rules are going to be, but I think it'll be a kind of, uh, you know, two sides of a sheet of paper, so not too much work. Um, I, I, we will offer a prize of some sort. We haven't quite worked out what that will be, but um, but there will be a prize. <laughs> you can see um, we, we've really thought, will, we've really thought this through, guys. You can see, but um, <laughs> well, something you have thought through. I just want to reassure people that we're not going to steal all your hard work at IB. You you retain your adventure of course oh yeah we're, we're not nicking it i guess um we might run uh, the winning adventure maybe maybe a first and second one as actual plays on our stream that sounds like a good idea but uh we in three weeks time we will have worked out exactly what we're doing <laughs> yeah. with this competition and also uh, we thought it would be a laugh to have a previous competition winner on 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 the show uh-huh so this is why we invited Alex Aguirre to talk about writing for the Alien competition and to give us um, some helpful hints or to give you guys some helpful hints about writing for competitions. Um, but also he's got an interesting career of his own, which we'll talk to him about, yes. which won't be very Year Zero related, but I'm sure will be fascinating. Really and, fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and also, um, don't think you're getting out of any homework Matthew, so I. But it's the hundred and fiftieth episode. It's about celebration. We is. don't need any homework. I don't so, need any homework. So we should we should celebrate with your homework, which uh, is going to be if you uh, if you you know your mission if you choose to accept it is to write about the syndicate in Coriolis. Finally, um, again something we've been talking about for a long time, haven't actually done, and I think that might round off our discussions of all the factions in Coriolis, which would be very appropriate for episode one hundred and fifty. It would be. It would be. But so I, do I do it. have another faction after that that we will write about. Do we? But, um, but it, it, right, so it'll, be, it'll finish off the original factions in Coriolis. Right, okay. This is uh, Mercy of the Icons 2 faction, is it? Uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> spoilers, spoilers. Cool. Um, good. So, good. yeah, okay. I, 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 I choose that. So, finally, after 150 episodes we can uh, uh, finally have a written-up version. We, we've talked about The Syndicate before yes. a number of times, but we've never done a, a single written-up article yeah. about it. So that's that will be my own work then. Cool. Right. Well, we have really banged on today, so it's time to draw the curtain on today's episode. Unless there's anything else you want to add, Matt? I only have to add my thanks to all of you for listening and my goodbye. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. And may the icons bless your adventures. You know what? We were going to get Francesco to say that for us, and we never did. Ah, we? we were. That was damn it. Uh... Maybe that's a tradition. We'll start with Alex in the next. That's episode. a good idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can get uh, get Francesco um, on again. Uh, 
just to say that. Yes, exactly. Cool. Good <laughs> okay, stuff. well, uh, thanks everybody. Bye bye. Cheers. You have been listening to the Effect podcast, presented by Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. Music, stars on a black sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing.